The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. How can you be so sure? Don't you understand? Science has made the volcano we're sitting on. Nobel invented dynamite to ease man's life. It's eased a good many into annihilation. Einstein split the atom to create energy. Is terror energy? Well, that's rubbish, Lynn. Scientifically, we've advanced further in the past 60 years than we have in the previous 2,000. Radio, television, automobile, airplane, atomic fission, jet propulsion. You'll be the next to advance science. And maybe us. Right into oblivion! Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 15th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined once again by Dave Plum, the author of Inconveniently Screwed, his published response to the fraud that is otherwise known as fighting climate change and reducing CO2, on what is at least his ninth appearance on Just Right, not counting his participation in a few Just Right panel discussions. His previous appearance on the show was in January of last year, only weeks before we were all locked down for two weeks to flatten the curve, which was never a curve but a very straight line, the flat line of a healthcare system on its deathbed. <laughs> With lockdowns being temporarily lifted based on the COVID pandemic, it's time to prepare ourselves for the coming climate pandemic lockdowns, which bears witness to the reality that both issues are parallel scams to serve an agenda completely unrelated to both issues. And we'll be getting right into our discussion right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. And Dave, welcome back. Nice to have you back. Thank you. Nice to be here again. You know, it's worth noting that the whole COVID pandemic lockdown took effect at the exact time that you and Salim Mansour and Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever were scheduled to speak on the issue of climate change at a Freedom Party dinner event scheduled for last year in April. Remember that? I remember. And we were in the middle of promoting the event when the Ford government placed limits on the numbers of people who could associate, you know, and our dinner theme was based on the how dare they theme that we got from... uh, what was her name? Thunberg? Yeah. <laughs> Greta Thunberg. Gre- Greta Thunberg, yeah. And we were going to be talking about the carbonated propaganda of climate change. I'm still ready to go with that, by the way. Yeah, well, we are too. And I think the time will soon be right again, because I think that issue is coming back to haunt us in a big way. And, mm-hmm. and that is part of the whole situation here. Now, last week you sent to my attention an email that was some... 30 pages long when I printed it, (laughs) along with several other documents. But out of that 30 pages, only seven were devoted to your topic of climate change, while the rest was devoted to the COVID issue. And you drew our attention to the fact that these issues 
are very parallel to each other in a lot of ways. You still see it that way? Yes, I started with climate change because that's a topic with which I'm very familiar and very comfortable speaking. I wanted to make the point that the people that are promoting both of these agendas really can't be trusted. So I presented several points with respect to climate change, starting with where most people got all their information and still believe about this topic from an inconvenient truth by Al Gore. The thing you need to realize about Al Gore is that he's not a climate expert. Al Gore's um, senior dissertation in college was on the effects of television on the presidency from 1947 to 1969. And what Mr. Gore is really an expert at is in understanding the power of the media and manipulating it to his own considerable benefit. Unfortunately, uh, he understands the politics of climate change very well, but he has practically no understanding at all of the sciences of climate change. So I presented uh, several points in there, uh, one focusing on Antarctica and the melting of the Larsen B ice shelf that's out at the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula that uh, Mr. Gore says is uh, uh, happening because we're burning fossil fuel and creating greenhouse gas 20,000 kilometers away at the other end of the world. The things that Mr. Gore did not tell us are very telling, I think, and one of those is that uh, there are ice canyons under the glaciers on Antarctica. Now, where you get a sheet of ice that's a few to several kilometers thick that bridges from the land to the water, part of it's over land, part of it's over water, you have a seashore in there, and as with any seashore, you have wave action, and the water that's in there is uh, barely above freezing, but it's still warmer than ice. The rotation of the earth causes this wave action to erode the glaciers along the shoreline from underneath. And these ice canyons keep creeping further and further up. You also get geothermal heating under the part of the glacier that's on land. So these ice canyons, if you picture this huge block of ice with a little indentation starting in the bottom of it where the shoreline is, and that indentation just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it's an inverted canyon where the bottom of it's wide and the top of it is narrow but it starts to eat up towards the top of the glacier. So eventually what you have is you have this big block of ice, part of it's over the water, part of it's over land, and there's this thin little ice bridge across the top of it. These ice canyons dwarf the Grand Canyon in size just to give some sort of perspective on how big they are. They're absolutely enormous. There comes a day when that ice bridge can't hold the two halves of the glacier together and the part that's over water breaks off. They call it calving off technically and is real and it happens, but it has nothing to do with greenhouse gas. Of course, that's the kind of thing that Al Gore used as evidence of of global warming that it's our fault too. And unfortunately, Mr. Gore inconveniently forgot to mention the ice canyons. Another thing he inconveniently forgot to mention is the geothermal vents along the South Scotia Ridge. Now, the South Scotia Ridge is a divergent uh, plate boundary between the South Scotia Plate and the Antarctic Plate, and it runs just along the edge of the Antarctic Peninsula just offshore. It's a crack in the Earth's crust, basically, that goes down to the magma underneath. 
and it releases a lot of uh, greenhouse gas into the ocean at 400 degrees centigrade. So if there's heating and greenhouse gas being produced in that part of the world, these geothermal vents along the South Scotia Ridge provide a, a much more logical proximal cause explanation, I think, than carbon dioxide from the Northern Hemisphere. Not very far away from the uh, Antarctic Peninsula is the South Sandwich Arc. And again, it's a, a geological structure. It's a volcanic arc that has volcanoes that are up to three kilometers high. And they're also spewing out a lot of greenhouse gas and a lot of heat into the ocean in that part of the world. Now, they're not as close as the South Scotia Ridge, but they're a heck of a lot closer than we are. And they also provide a logical proximal cause explanation if there is in fact warming and, and greenhouse gas uh, happening in that part of the world. So those are three things he forgot to mention, but the real biggie as far as I'm concerned is the intertropical convergence zone. I call it the ICZ for brevity, but the intertropical convergence zone. It's basically a wall of air that runs around the earth at the equator. You get the northern trade winds coming down uh, from the north towards the equator and you get the southern trade winds going up from the south towards the equator and basically these two sets of trade winds meet at the equator but they're like butting heads with one another and the result is that neither the northern trade winds can penetrate far into the southern hemisphere and the southern trade winds can't penetrate very far into the northern hemisphere they just butt heads along the equator this is called the intertropical convergence zone. It effectively puts up a wall of air at the equator, which means that northern and southern hemisphere air masses do not mix. Most of the greenhouse gas on Earth is produced in the northern hemisphere because land produces greenhouse gas and oceans absorb greenhouse gas. Well, 70% of the land mass on Earth is in the northern hemisphere, so that's where most of the greenhouse gas is produced and the southern hemisphere is mostly oceans so it absorbs greenhouse gas and nasa has a video out there that runs three minutes and 11 seconds i think done in 2006 and it shows greenhouse gas production throughout the whole year in the northern hemisphere it's all these swirls of yellows and reds varying intensities of greenhouse gas production and it's an interesting thing to look at because you watch this video through the whole year and just pay attention to how much greenhouse gas from the northern hemisphere gets down to the Antarctic Peninsula. Unless your eyesight is a heck of a lot better than mine, you're not going to see any. Yeah. Because it can't pass the intertropical convergence zone. Right. And Al Gore inconveniently forgot to mention the intertropical convergence zone as well. Well, so there, 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 there is the big question. Did he inconveniently forget or did he... Ha I think he has an agenda that all of this is irrelevant to him. Even if he knew about it, he wouldn't want us to know about it. Uh, he has an agenda. It's not, well, a, it's not about climate change. It's about state control. And that's, that's exactly my point, is that all the things we have not been told that are so important to understanding, so critical to understanding climate and climate change on Earth, we're not being told about. All we're ever hearing about is greenhouse gas. And the Venus story, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson did a TV series a few years ago, what was it, Cosmos, a space-time odyssey, and I think it was episode 12, where he talked about Venus having once been an idyllic planet just like Earth, which is total, total nonsense. Yeah, we talked about that on a previous show. But he's an Al Gore acolyte, and he's 
also promoting this anthropogenic climate change agenda that Al Gore started. So, I mean, these are two very influential people. And, and if, if Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's supposedly a world-renowned astrophysicist, if he understood the inverse square law, he wouldn't say things like that. And I can't imagine, I mean, the inverse square law is pretty simple. It states that the intensity of gravity and radiation vary inversely with the square of the distance between bodies, which sounds complicated, but all it means simply is that if you're twice as far from a source of heat, you're only getting a quarter as much heat. And if you're three times as far, you're getting one-ninth as much, and four times as far away, you're getting one-sixteenth as much. So if you do the calculations on that, it means that uh, Venus gets nearly twice, 1.91 times as, as great intensity of solar radiation as Earth does. And we know on Earth how much difference it makes in climate and temperature by simply tilting the axis a little bit towards or away from the sun. We call it seasons here, summer and winter, and it makes like a 100 degrees of, of temperature difference depending on whether the axis of a planet that's in the same orbit stays basically about the same distance from the Earth. Most people wouldn't realize that in the coldest time of the year in the northern hemisphere, winter time here, that's around January 4th, that's when the Earth comes closest to the sun. Closest to the sun, right. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not even distance from the sun, it's which way the axis is tilted. And in the summer, when it's hottest in the northern hemisphere, that's when the Earth is furthest away from the sun. So, but we understand that even over that difference of distance, which is about 50,000 kilometers now, even over that distance, its actual tilt makes a big difference. So if you can imagine moving the Earth 42 million kilometers closer to the sun and then saying that it's so hot but it doesn't have anything to do with distance from the sun, which is what Neil deGrasse Tyson said, that's BS. Bad science. (laughs) Bad science, right. (laughs) But it's great politics, isn't it? Wonderful politics. I mean, what they want is... If, if you want to lock down a society, you don't want to be giving them facts that would prevent your argument justifying the lockdown. And I think that's what you alerted us to in terms of pointing out this one news item that we'll listen to right now from Tucker Carlson, where we're apparently after this whole COVID lockdown ends temporarily, if they run out of the COVID excuse, they'll switch back to the climate change excuse. And we'll talk more right after this. So we're learning more now about the sad toll of the corona lockdowns in this country. According to Joe Biden, though, we could get another round of lockdowns. These for a crisis that's every bit as bad as the coronavirus, maybe worse. That crisis, of course, says Joe Biden, is climate change. Today, I'm pleased to announce a team that will lead my administration's ambitious plan to address the existential threat of our time, climate change. Folks, we're in a crisis. Just like we need to be a unified nation in response to COVID-19, we need a unified national response to climate change. And from this crisis, from these crises, I should say, we need to seize the opportunity to build back and build back better than we were before. A unified national response. It's involuntary. That's the one thing we know. What does it mean? Well, we're learning that a World Health Organization staffer has written a report saying that a climate lockdown could be called for. It's like a COVID lockdown, a climate lockdown. (laughs) 
Mark Morano is an author who has written a lot about climate change. He founded Climate Depot. He joins us tonight. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. A climate lockdown. Now, I would laugh this off the table, except we all just lived through the last 18 months, so we know that anything is possible. What does this mean exactly? Well, you know, in my book, Green Fraud, I detail two chapters on this, Tucker. This is the climate activists were, first of all, jealous when the COVID lockdowns happened. They were beside themselves saying, how is this happening? Everyone from Greta Thunberg to John Kerry, UN officials. And then they started saying, we need to follow this. If we can shut down for a virus, we can shut down for climate. And that's what we're seeing. There's even academics in Australia proposing adding climate change to death certificates. And Bill Gates has said the death toll will be greater. So they're following every step of the way. And it's not just, you know, a, a professor here or someone in academia. We have a major UK report coming out. We have an international agency report that came out uh, calling for essentially the same type of lockdowns, everything from restrictions on your thermostat to restrictions of moving. Uh, you know, you can only fly in a climate emergency when it's, quote, morally justifiable. You know, kind of like a lockdown, you have to justify going to the store for essential services. They're going after freedom of movement. They're going after private car ownership. They're going after uh, everything it means to be a free person and turning it over to the administrative state. Would this include shutting down the iPhone factories in China? Would China and India participate <laughs> in this climate lockdown or is it kind of you first, America? Well, you know, as we know, the lockdowns had never been proposed. We felt like lemmings following the, the, the Chinese Communist Party in terms of them recommending lockdowns. The World Health Organization went after it. The World Health Organization employees are now recommending these climate lockdowns. The one countries that won't be affected is China. As, as you say, as we're sitting home binge watching Netflix, we're not going to be able to have the freedoms we used to have. In the UK, they proposed CO2 ration cards that the government or employers would monitor your CO2 levels, you know, your energy use, your travel, the type of car you drive. If you exceed a level, you pay penalties. If you're under, you get credits. This is the world. A CO2 budget for every man, woman, and child on the planet has been proposed by a German climate advisor. This is, our, this is what we're looking at. I you know, I talked to a German who talked about East Germany. You used to have these kind of restrictions uh, in East Germany before you could leave the country. But we're talking about proposing these now on Americans within the country. And we had this, of course, with COVID. They were talking about bans on interstate travel at one point, uh, a national ban, some of Biden's advisors. So anything is possible. Chuck Schumer is urging Biden to declare a national climate emergency. Just like a blue state governor, he could have emergency powers. I feel such deep shame that Americans complied with what we've just been through, and I hope that they will not comply with this. I really do. Sounds like the Old West. Yeah, on the bus told me that internal combustion engines were banned about a year ago. Some kind of clean air act. Now, Dave, one of the key issues with giving people facts about climate change or even facts about COVID, like who is that helping in terms of ending these lockdowns and dealing with the real political problem that we're that we're facing, which is more of a pandemic of politics than of anything else? For example, if I'm listening to this show right now and I'm hearing all this, to whose benefit is it to know this stuff? Like, if the citizens know, then maybe they'll know that there's some kind of nonsense going on. But what can they really do with the information when the politicians don't want to even listen to it and it's not even on their agenda? It's like everything else. They just censor it and shut you up and tell you, no, it's not true. Or, you know, we got to worry about CO2, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And yet they keep pushing it unabated. It's been going on like this for years. If facts don't matter, 
what value are they? I know yeah, that's a, a good question. question. When facts don't matter, all is lost, basically, because the world runs on facts even if politics doesn't. A lot of this, actually, for the last couple of generations in school, the, the people have been indoctrinated, and that's something else we could talk about, the Ontario High School curriculum. Mm-hmm. I looked at that a couple of years ago. It's been a while since I did, and I'm going off the top of my head here. It seems to me there was something like 188 references to climate change, yeah. 79 references to uh, greenhouse gas, and one single solitary reference to what really drives climate on this planet, and that's the Milankovitch cycles. And we just talked about that a little bit with the stretch of the Earth's orbit, which sure. is eccentricity and uh, obliquity, which is axial tilt. That's what drives climate change on this planet. And it surprises me that there's even one mention in the curriculum of, um, of Milankovitch cycles, and my guess is that the so-called fact-checkers, quote-unquote, who went through the curriculum sanitizing it of all reference to real science just missed that one. Mm-hmm. But, hey, nobody's perfect. And if you look at that curriculum, you'll see like something like 74% of all this stuff about climate change and greenhouse gas does not come from the STEM subjects. It doesn't come from science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It comes from the social sciences. Social sciences and humanities. Right. So... It has nothing to do with science. It has to do with social engineering. It has to do with programming, indoctrination, brainwashing, call it what you will, teaching impressionable young minds that it's all about greenhouse gas and preventing them from being exposed to any other knowledge like Milankovitch cycles or the intertropical convergence zone or any of the other things we talked about earlier on. So now you've got an electorate that that's what they believe because that's what they were taught in school. And I don't know how you go about changing something like that. People need to come to realize that politicians, mainstream media, Hollywood celebrities, sports celebrities, and teachers are flat out lying to them. And until they come to that realization and accept it because it's true, and I've got there because I've done many, many hours of research on the actual science and the facts, so I know I'm being lied to by all the people that are in positions of authority. So therein comes the value of fact. Yes. Learning facts, you have to get them out there, and you have to get them to as many people as possible so that they can counter the propaganda that they're dealing with. And the problem is with climate, it's a very complex multifaceted interactive system it's not all about greenhouse gas right but greenhouse gas is an easy thing to put out there because people understand it it's simple and if you tell them it's all about greenhouse gas and that's all you need to understand then they don't need to know about all these other things you know you, you just hit on a really interesting observation the complexity of not just climate change but even of the whole SARS-CoV-2 issue and and how viruses spread and stuff. These are complex issues. They are. And I'm almost thinking, okay, well, that is the reason then that politicians are using them as leverage because they know the average person can't dig into the complexities. The average person can dig into the complexity. No, but they won't. The average person just doesn't bother digging into the complexity. Yeah, I hear you. And that's a problem. And I don't know how we overcome that. Well, let's get into some of the complexities. That's the only way we can. It's all you can do is, is, is get the info out. Well, there's new information that uh, I 
recently became aware of Gwyn Dyer, a man that I have no respect for in terms of his ranting about oh, carbon dioxide. Yeah, he's horrible. Yeah, and, and climate change. Wrote a blurb here on, what, February 23rd of this year uh, about Texas, Rossby Waves, and Wave 7. Now, Rossby Waves, if you want to talk about complexity, Rossby Waves are a really difficult thing to understand. Rossby now, waves. Dyer mentioned them in his, in his oh, essay? It's all about it. This is, oh, all is that right? This I, is all about why Texas froze. It's all about okay. Rossby Waves. Okay, so tell us about Rossby Waves. But... That's spelled R-O-S-S-B-Y, yeah, right? Yeah, Rossby, yes. Um, Rossby waves, I've got something here. Where did they come from? Um, they were, uh, okay. Rossby waves, also known as planetary waves, are a type of inertial wave naturally occurring in rotating fluids. First identified by Carl Gustav Arvid Rossby. They are observed in the atmospheres and oceans of planets owing to the rotation of the planet. Okay? Okay. So, they're a phenomenon that has to do with Coriolis effect, rotation of the planet, and, and so on. Unless you're Gwen Dyer, and then they're all a result of greenhouse gas being produced by people burning fossil fuel. And he talks about these Rossby waves. Now, these Rossby waves are huge, huge loops in temperature gradients. There are two levels... Well, there are more than two levels, but the bottom two levels of the of Earth's atmosphere, the bottom level is the troposphere. And the troposphere is where we live. The troposphere is where almost all weather phenomena happen. It's where clouds happen and, and rain and uh, all this sort of thing. So, so we tend to think of the troposphere as the atmosphere, but there's more to the atmosphere than just the troposphere. Now, between the troposphere the next layer up is the stratosphere and there's a, a, a layer that's it's like a thermocline type of thing in the oceans and between the the troposphere where we live and the stratosphere above that uh, there's what they call a um, tropopause the tropopause is the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere temperatures going up from earth get colder as they rise in the troposphere but once they hit that tropopause that boundary between the two they start to warm up as they go higher in the uh, in the stratosphere it's a kind of a peculiar physics there but there are jet streams in the troposphere that aircraft fly in to make up to actually shorten flight times if if they're going from west to east if they're com coming from east to west, they try to avoid the jet streams because that slows them down. And Dyer mentions this, but he's talking about those jet streams in relation to these Rossby waves. Well, these Rossby waves are a result of perturbations in another set of jet streams that's higher up in the stratosphere. So the tropopause at so are you saying there's more than one, one or two jet streams? I always thought that there was just like the one major one. <laughs> you know? Well, there's jet streams. I mean, each, each hemisphere has its own jet stream. Right. So if we're talking about the northern hemisphere, we're talking about the northern hemisphere jet stream, and we're talking about aircraft flying between North America and Europe and, and Asia following what they call is a great circle route, which if you look at a flat map proje projection, it looks like an arc. Uh, but it's the shortest way because you're actually flying over a sphere. But all these great circle routes, um, the the jet streams generally lie in 
the region of where these great circle roots are flown, so planes can pick them up fairly readily. At the poles, the tropopause is only about 20,000 feet, but at the equator, the tropopause is about 60,000 feet. And in our part of the world where these uh, great circle roots are flown, it's around 35 to 40,000 feet, which is about as high as these planes fly. The jet stream that is responsible for Rossby waves going way down south into Texas or whatever, that jet stream runs around 80,000 feet up in the stratosphere. No commercial aircraft can fly at 80,000 feet. Right. So he's taken this jet stream and he's saying, okay, it's pulling all this big loop of, of cold air from the Arctic down to, the, down to Texas. And I'm not even sure it's really loops. Um, these things are hard to understand. To me, it seems to me like they're more like, remember lava lamps? Yeah, from the 60s, <laughs> the the bubbles that right. wandered around, and I mean, they were pretty cool. It, it seems to me that these Rossby waves are more like the bubbles in a, in a lava lamp where pieces break off from the Arctic and drift down south. Or maybe somehow hot air from the south moves up to the north. But he's conflating the two of them. He's got one set of jet streams purportedly doing something else that another set of jet streams is responsible for and and it's all just more bs more bad science <laughs> so that brings us to conrad black wrote an article um june 12th 2021 on covid and much else canada has taken leave of its senses and and in this article he says, in following the science, quote-unquote, over COVID, we were led astray, just as we have been in the hysteria about climate change. This is a very murky area that requires research rather than instant, radical, and economically destructive action. And that's my take on it, too. This is a complex subject, just like climate change, but it's being overly simplified, and we're not getting all the information we need to have on it. Okay, in that same article, uh, Conrad Black also mentions this. Uh, I'll just read this. My wife recently returned from two weeks in the U.S. and was handed a form that advised her that, quote, since you recently entered Canada with no symptoms of COVID-19, you must quarantine for a minimum of 14 days, unquote. Failing which, quote, could lead to a ticket of up to $5,000, six months in prison, and or fines of up to $750,000, unquote. Any violation of quarantine that could be imputed to have contributed to the death of someone else, and, and you could face a fine of up to $1 million or imprisonment of up to three years or both. Have we gone mad? This is authoritarian nonsense in support of an insane policy. So this gets us back to the parallels between the two issues. And yep. when we return, I want to hear about your journey into this new subject area and why you went in the direction you did and how you sort of entered into the whole COVID thing. Because, of course, as you said earlier on an earlier show about even climate change, you don't consider yourself an expert, do you? Oh, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I... We could do a little bit on experts, and I'll explain why. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I don't consider myself an expert because the experts are charlatans. or people like Al Gore and Greta Thunberg as a right. high school dropout. Right. I would say I'm a scholar. 
man-made global warming is simply not the crisis it's been made out to be. And that frees up our time, our energy, and our resources to deal with other urgent matters like plastic in the oceans. That should be welcome news. And on the whole, it's not helpful to delve into the motives of people in public debate. But there are some for whom man-made global warming has offered a convenient opportunity to do things that they wanted to do anyway. Thus, Christine Stewart, Canada's Ministry of the Environment back in 1998, said then, no matter if the science is all phony, climate change provides the greatest opportunity to bring about justice and equality in the world. And people who think like that will be tempted to play fast and loose with the facts and the logic. Indeed, Stephen Schneider, a leading alarmist, in an unguarded comment printed in Discover magazine back in 1989, said, To capture the public imagination, we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we may have. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. Here, I would urge everyone in this debate and in any debate, please always to choose honesty. It is more effective in the long run and there are major costs to doing otherwise. For instance, over eight years the Obama administration spent something like 16 billion dollars a year on research into climate change, almost all of it intended to show that the problem was man-made. That adds up to 128 billion dollars that wasn't available for research and action on other problems, including, as I say, plastic in the oceans. But the costs run deeper than that. Because if scientists are bending the truth, no matter how noble their motives, it brings science itself into disrepute. And that impairs our ability to deal with other environmental problems, including the consequences of natural climate change. It's bad for society, and it's bad for the scientists. So I implore you not to go down that road, and if you have gone down it, whatever distance, please turn around and come back. We are all environmentalists now. We are all determined to protect the Earth, our only home, a beautiful and lonely planet. But to do that, we need commitment, we need intelligence, and we need integrity. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I'm in studio with Dave Plum, whose expertise, which he denies being an expert in, <laughs> is climate change. But in the same way as, as you entered into that whole issue and became a scholar on it, as you say, you had the same kind of parallel experience as you found out more and more about the whole COVID situation. Yeah, I started with climate change because, as I say, that's a... F- topic that I'm familiar with, but I wanted to make the point that my opinions on climate change are based on a heck of a lot of research and what I feel is very good science. And I mean, this science comes from well-respected organizations like NASA and NOAA and the U.S. Geological Survey, and uh, these are respected research organizations. And an expert will never say to you, I don't know. And I've already said, 
I don't know everything there is to know about right. climate change or anything else. So I'm still learning. I just learned about Rossby ways fairly recently. And I also try to share my knowledge with other people, which is what a scholar does more than an expert. An expert just preaches what he wants you to believe. But the point I was making is that I have done equal research in terms of, I mean, not years of it, but I have done a, a, as, as deep a dive as I can into the COVID situation and, and SARS-CoV-2. It's a lot more difficult to do a deep dive into that because so much of the information is censored. It gets taken down, it gets taken off Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and various internet sites. You're getting all these uh, sites that are saying, well, what about this? And, and maybe it's conspiracy theory and maybe it's truth. If we can't go there and look at the, the data for ourselves, find out the information for ourselves, there's no real way to know which it is. Now, when, when it came to climate change, did you find the same censorship level or was it not no because because organizations like nasa and noaa and the usgs and all these organizations they've been publishing this stuff online for years the fact checkers haven't turned their guns on that information yet to say hey wait a minute we can't allow people to know this because they might come to realize that this whole climate change agenda is a scam Well, maybe that's coming soon. I think they're going to have a hard time, you know, basically saying that all these organizations are are out to lunch on on all the things that they've published over the years. I hope. Well, they've been saying it about doctors on viruses. And well, stuff that's like true. That, you know, that's true. Yeah, that may be coming. I, I I think anything's possible when you're when you control the media and you control the message. Right. Yeah, that that may that may be. But the fact is, like the fact checkers have been hard at work suppressing any kind of data about COVID. Now, Roman Baber wrote a letter to Premier Ford uh, back earlier this year about hospital capacities, and he references January 12th here. Uh, Hospital occupancy, and this is December of 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. And in round numbers, Going from December of each of those months, 17, 18, 19, 20, we had 95%, 95%, 95%, 84%. Right. So there's 2017, 18, and 19, all at 95%, 2020 at 84%. And when you look at ICU capacities, the similar numbers were 87%, 91%, 84%, 81%. So... December of 2020, occupancies in hospitals were down considerably. Now, well, I was I was getting that message from day one from people. I yeah, knew and so was I. So was there. I. And I and and but to me, this was a preconceived notion that, that that I had that maybe we were being misled a little bit here. So I wanted to see the actual data. Mm-hmm. So I contacted the Ministry of Health, and I said, "Can I see the data on occupancies?" Um, from the beginning of 2016, from January of 2016 through to the present. Because then I can do my own analysis and see if these numbers are right. So even though I think I agree with MPP Baber, I want to see the data so I can be sure. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get the numbers. So I contacted Jeff Urich, he's my MPP, and he never got back to me, but his office did. I had several conversations, emailed um, interchanges with uh, people in his office. And I've been promised the data, but I'm several months later, I'm still waiting for it. 
But I did get some interesting things. On February 24th, I got a detailed response, and I'll read some of this. Uh, relating to occupancies on January 8th, and why that day specifically, I have no idea. But it says here, uh, occupancy rates on January 8th, 2021, 85.8% for all beds. All types combined 86.2 for acute beds and 63.5% for acute heart failures. 42 hospitals in the province had a total and acute care occupancy rates over 90%. There are about 224 hospitals in Ontario, without counting uh, private and psychiatric hospitals. So that means 81% of hospitals were at less than 90% capacity. Some hospitals are unable to adjust beds with staff available, reported in the daily bed census to account for blocked beds, which are beds that cannot be used due to isolation requirements in order to maintain uh, physical distancing. To prevent the spread of COVID-19, some beds in hospital wards are unable to be used if one or more patients in that room have tested positive for or are under investigation for COVID-19. Rooms that would normally accommodate two to four patients would only be able to accommodate one patient. The remaining beds in that room would be unoccupied but blocked and unavailable for use. So the resulting occupancy rates appear low because hospitals aren't able to use their full complement of beds. January 8th, 82... So, so it was an artificial situation? Yes, that they hospitals created. have cancelled surgeries and transferred patients to ensure their ICU beds available. So what this means is you've got a room that can accommodate four patients, but you've got one person in there who may or may not have COVID. They're being tested for it, yeah. but they block out the other three beds in that room saying, oh, well, we can't use these. And then they're saying, well, we're over capacity. We're overstressed. And meanwhile, they've spent millions of dollars setting up these off-site facilities like the Agriplex here in in London, where they're, what, something like 500 beds? Right. And they're they're staffing that, presumably, at least they were in the early days. How many patients showed up there? Zero. Well, this is the same. Not a single one. This is the same experience they had in New York when Donald Trump provided them with that offshore you know, they rented the luxury ships yeah. and they set them up for beds. Nobody showed up. Yeah. But, you know, I heard from a lot of doctors in the U.S., particularly working in hospitals, they said it's very normal. In fact, it would be abnormal for a hospital not to be running at capacity because otherwise they lose money. Exactly. And so the capacity is an artificial figure that just means that that's where their normal rate of flow is. But when it grows higher, as it does every flu season... The capacity itself expands. You want your hospitals running pretty close to 100% capacity or you're spending money. Right. Spending your your wheels. Okay, my background is mostly transportation. And, And filling the empty lanes, filling the backhaul lanes was the perennial challenge of a trucker. If you own a truck... Mm-hmm. You have overhead, you're paying for the truck and you're paying for fuel and maintenance and all this sort of thing and you're trying to pay yourself something out of it. You're only getting paid when you're turning the wheels with a load on behind right. you. If you've got an empty trailer behind you or you're running Bob Dill without anything hooked up, you're losing money. So to a trucker, he wants to be running fully loaded 100% of the time, ideally, and the hospital's no different. A hospital needs to be running at nearly 100% capacity to be really being used effectively. So the whole flatten the curve thing was BS from the beginning. Yes, yeah. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Like I've argued on the show before, I said, look, we should have overextended our hospitals so at least we would know what they were capable of doing. And well, then learning from that and then creating the, the changes permanently. 
Well, in, in response to MPP Bieber's letter, number one, he got kicked out of the caucus. So it's a shoot-the-messenger response, which is the last resort of incompetent management everywhere. Life is wonderful in the Irie Tower with your rose-colored sunglasses on if you've shot your messengers and you don't have to know about all the bad news, but all that bad news might be stuff that you need to survive. Right. <laughs> so it's pretty short-term thinking, uh, or short-sighted thinking, but the, the response that they made was a canned response, and I got a copy of it in a PDF form, trying to debunk everything that, uh, that, that Baber said, which is why I asked for the data. But they were quoting hospital occupancies in the GTA up to 110%. Right. To me, that sounds like hallway health care, which we had for the last 15 or 20 years with McGinty and Wynn. And these guys ran, campaigned on ending hallway health care. This has been a really convenient excuse for them not doing that. Last year, a seasonal respiratory virus of high infectivity but low pathogenicity passed across the world and sadly took with it people who were very old, who were already very sick, and most of whom were in the last months and years of their lives. There were younger people who died. May God have mercy in their souls and comfort their families and friends. But in terms of the overall all-cause mortality, there was nothing to see. Seasonal viruses do this every year. They have done since time began, and they will continue to do so no matter what humans do. In 2020, no country, in no country, was there a significant increase in overall mortality compared to the past. Ireland in this pandemic actually increased her population by a couple of percent. If we take away the track and trace system, calling for the first time in medical history a case, someone who's perfectly well, who has no symptoms and which is going to cost the UK government £37 billion over two years. I don't even know what £37 billion looks like, what it, would, what it would buy. Would it be two hospitals? Would it be five hospitals? Would it be a thousand nurses' jobs? I have no idea. But these PCR tests measure nothing. They are an illusion to create a crisis. If we take away the fact that the WHO changed the rules, changed the way in which we measure disease impact by saying that any death within 28 days of a positive PCR test was due to COVID, and even without a positive test, if you had symptoms, shortness of breath, fever, the things that people die from every day, that was COVID too. If we take away the daily, no hourly, incessant misery porn in the legacy media, dolefully recounting the figures and scrutinising the anguished last hours of those who were taken and the po-faced politicians with crocodile tears pretending to care. If we take away the psychological abuse of populations across this planet using applied behavioural psychology designed to keep them in terror. If we take away the signage, the arrows, the one-way systems, walk, don't walk, the yellow notices on every flat surface, the sanitisation, the masks, all the paraphernalia of this neuro-linguistic programme and mental abuse which tells us that we are the biohazards, we are a danger to our families and friends. If we take all this away, there is nothing to see. The Emperor has no clothes. there was something to see, wasn't there? Viruses don't make laws, governments do. But what we did see, what we saw was removal of our most basic and inalienable rights. To work, to earn, to move, to associate, to kiss, to hug, to go to church, to bury our dead with dignity, to live our lives as we see fit. We saw the removal of our right to speak, to protest, to object to this tyranny. 
We saw censorship, character assassination and banishment of scientists and professors who dared to offer an alternative narrative. We saw our children and young people locked up, denied their education, the right to play outside, to live their precious young lives, however they and their parents saw fit. We've seen millions of the poorest and most marginalised people on the planet pushed to starvation and death because of the economic fallout, because poverty kills. I've worked as a GP throughout this past year, and I've not seen people gasping for breath from COVID, but people utterly abandoned by their health system. People in despair from loneliness, from isolation, from fear. People who haven't seen their families and loved ones for months and whose lives are infinitely poorer as a result. I've seen delayed cancer diagnoses. People having treatments cancelled just willy-nilly. People dying, waiting for elective procedures. People in pain who can't get help. Estimates vary, but it's now assumed that between 200,000 and 500,000 extra deaths will occur in the area covered by the NHS. And that's assuming that this lunacy of lockdown stops. So another source of information is uh, from a person we know who is a healthcare professional in a hospital in Ontario. I think. Yes, I've been referring to this person as Anon. Yeah, in the, in the GTA. <laughs> right. I'm just going to read from the email sent us. Uh, According to the data I've gleaned from my hospital organization, over 5,500 people who work in hospital have been tested for COVID. Only 36 cases are suspected workplace transmission. Statistically, the safest place from COVID you could possibly be in this province, it seems, is in a hospital full of acutely ill COVID patients. This data is consistent with hospitals across the province. Transmission to healthcare workers is extremely low, almost non-existent. They might say it's due to PPE. Uh, that's personal protective equipment for people who aren't aware. But this defies the particle physics we understand about the size of pores and masks and the ambient air transmission. Something is not adding up here. He goes on to say, I haven't seen a single teenager present with covid in ER throughout the entire pandemic, but I have seen a teenager with mRNA-induced shot-induced myocarditis, which is an autoimmune attack of the heart muscle. Uh, Since the beginning of the pandemic, there has been a refusal to discuss age-stratified risk. I've seen some very sick people with what is allegedly COVID, which means a positive PCR test plus severe respiratory symptoms, especially older people, so maybe the vax makes sense for them. I'm also suspicious how much the therapies we use from steroids, antibiotics to ventilators have caused a lot of the death that ultimately gets attributed to COVID. I've seen guys in their 30s and 40s almost dead in ICU, but when I look at their cases, you can see that their severe illness, usually involving bacterial pneumonia, follows the use of immune-suppressing steroids given for COVID in many cases. There are so many scientific unknowns and uncertainties but it's all being spun into a convenient collectivist narrative. Lock them all down and vax them all up. A lot of people coming to emerge after second dose. Lots of shortness of breath and chest pain. Most of the time seems like nothing too serious, but it puts people out of commission for days. Common to see young people, I consider 30s and 40s young for a hospital patient, nearly out of commission for a week after getting vaxxed. It's funny how one of the justifications for everybody getting vaxxed is that even though it's acknowledged a 30 or 40 year old is extremely unlikely to die from COVID, quote, we don't know the long-term effects of COVID, example, long COVID, unquote. 
but nobody is allowed to ask the unintended effects of the vax. So there's where you stand with uh, somebody, uh, an in, uh, insider insight to the uh, Ontario hospital uh, situation. You know, there's this doctor um, named Mark Trozzi. Trozzi, yes. And he had a full, full page plus article in the newspaper called Druthers, which I recommend people discover either online or get the hard copy because this is really the alternative news to the whole situation. And he wrote here too, he says, have I ever seen a COVID-19 patient? In my emergency department work, I have never seen a patient sick with COVID-19. I've seen some positive PCR tests in asymptomatic people and watched people be imprisoned in their own homes and isolated from family and friends. And then he talks about how the PCR test is, you know, totally misleading. These facts are all out there and they're coming out more and more. And, you know, when we look at the agenda, the real agenda behind all of this COVID stuff has been to get these so-called vaccines into every arm, right? That's what they're they're talking about. Seems to be. But there's nothing about these vaccines that they're saying will prevent you from getting any of the SARS-CoV-2 viruses or anything like that, or that will even prevent you from getting COVID. No. You know, everybody's talking about getting their first and second shots, but, the you know, there are no first and second shots. Once started, they become perpetual because, you know, they're talking about these vaccine passports now. And what would you need a passport for unless the shots are perpetual, right? Mm-hmm. And so where, where do you go with that? The whole phoniness of all of this is just frightening, and people are still dealing with the so-called SARS virus, you know, which I don't even know if, has, has it ever even been identified properly? We keep getting all these new variants. Well, that's that's another question, I guess. What really bothers me with this whole thing is the, is the lack of data that we're allowed to see i mean i can't get data on hospital occupancies and i'm not asking for personal information i'm just asking how many people were in hospital and how many people were in icu i mean i've been a lifelong resident of canada and ontario and paying taxes for decades and my taxes go towards paying the wages of the people that are compiling this data i I think i should be entitled to see the data good point it seems to be secret and, and, and I also asked about, uh, about suicides because I have a note here about uh, an additional 1,000 opioid deaths in Ontario uh, in 2020 uh, per a National Post article in which it says social isolation and travel restrictions have only added to the stress the population is experiencing. But there are articles out there that suggest that suicides are way up throughout this pandemic and largely because of the stress that people are out of work, out of businesses have been lost and and social isolation but i i asked a couple of agencies that deal with suicides i asked for for information on suicides and i can't get that data either really so if there's not something being hidden why is the data so damn hard to get very good question yeah well i've looked at population dynamics as well because you get all this stuff about cases and deaths in the beginning a case was defined. I mean, let me read you this. This is, dates back to March of 2003, and it's a CDC, Centers for Disease Control, case definition for severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, a suspected case respiratory illness of unknown etymology with onset since February 1st, 2003, and the following criteria, documented temperature greater than 100.4 Fahrenheit or 38 centigrade, 
one or more symptoms with respiratory illness, example cough, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, or radiographic findings of pneumonia or acute respiratory distress syndrome, close contact within 10 days of onset of symptoms with a person under investigation for or suspected of having SARS, or travel within 10 days of onset of symptoms to an area with documented transmission of SARS as defined by the World Health Organization. Defined as having cared for, having lived with, having directed contact with respiratory secretions and or body fluids of a person of having SARS. So that was the original definition of a SARS case. In other words, it was somebody who was symptomatic, who was sick. Yeah. Yeah. And in the first wave, that's what we saw. The first wave was people who were sick because they were the only people being tested. Yeah. And and obviously the death rate, the percentage of people that died in that first wave was was quite high because a great many of them were senior citizens, all jammed together in, in buildings where all the air is being circulated from one room to another and people are going from one room to another. And you put them all together like sardines in a can and COVID gets in there and... and you've already got all those comorbidities going on. I mean, those were the people that should have been isolated. They should have been taken out of those homes and put with relatives or somewhere else where they weren't in contact with each other. I mean, that would have flattened the wave a lot on the first one. But anyway, I started to track population uh, statistics back about that time, which would be April or May of 2020. And I'm using uh, Worldometers, which is a common website where people go for this sort of information. So you've got and uh, in the first wave, the spring of 2020, we had 2,760 cases and 222 deaths. This was in the wave where they were only testing sick people. So the mortality rate was 8% there, pretty high. In the second wave, which was the winter of 2020 to 2021, maximum daily cases, 11,383 up from, and I used maximums just so I wouldn't be accused of trying to minimize. And don't forget, in that first wave, they were talking about people with the virus, not that they died of the virus, they died with the virus. They weren't even making that oh, distinction. Well, that, that applied all the way through. Right. I mean, there were people that so died. How, how we there were people out? that died of car accidents and, and gunshot wounds that, that the death <laughs> certificate says COVID. Right. Um, so anyway, so I used maximum daily case. These are maximum daily case case counts in Canada. So the second wave, 11,383, 257 deaths. Now that compares with 2,760 and 222 deaths. It's 2%. But by then, we were testing everybody. We were testing healthy, asymptomatic people and finding evidence of COVID. And we'll get into that later. Third wave, spring of 2021, 11,041 maximum daily cases. And uh, that's 59, down to 1%. So we went from 8% death rate in the first wave where they were only testing sick people to 2% in the second wave where they're testing everybody to 1% in the third wave where they're testing everybody. So it stands to reason the more people you test, the more you're going to find evidence of, of something. Well, one thing we certainly need to test for is the lack of data that we're having and our time has really run short, so we're going to have to carry on this conversation in our next round. Part two. Part two. And for right now, if you're looking for data, make sure that you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color. 
can color it to black and white under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. At least I know. At least I know the coronavirus isn't gonna be around for long, cause it comes from China and nothing from there lasts very long. If it was made in America, it'd be around forever, goddamn it.